Neuropathways, a Cleveland Clinic podcast exploring the latest research discoveries and clinical advances in the fields of neurology, neurosurgery, neurorehab, and psychiatry. Patients with functional movement disorders represent one of the more common disorders referred to the modern neurologic clinic. Despite its prevalence, the mechanisms underlying functional movement disorders remain poorly understood. In today's episode of Neural Pathways, we'll discuss managing patients with functional movement disorders. I'm your host, Glenn Stevens, neurologist, neuro-oncologist in the Cleveland Clinic's Neurologic Institute. I'm very pleased to have Drs. Shinshin Yu and Taylor Rush join me for today's conversation. Dr. Yu is the staff neurologist in the Center for Neurological Restoration and co-director of the Functional Movement Disorders Clinic in Cleveland Clinic's Neurological Institute. Dr. Rush is a clinical health psychologist and co-director of the Functional Movement Disorders Clinic in Cleveland Clinic's Center for Neurological Restoration. Shinshin Taylor, welcome to Neuropathways. Thank you for having us. Yes, thank you. We'll start with uh, Dr. Yu. Functional movement disorder can be a complex diagnosis for both patients and clinicians alike. Given that's the case, can you start off today's conversation by explaining for our listeners how your team diagnoses patients with functional movement disorders? Glenn, in the last 10 years, um, our understanding and approach to functional neurological symptom disorder in general have really evolved. There have been uh, major and important changes in the DSM-5 criteria for FND. Um, As you know, traditionally viewed as a primarily psychological disorder, now a psychological stressor is no longer required to make the diagnosis. Another important change is that it is no longer a diagnosis of exclusion, but rather a rule-in diagnosis that can be accurately made based on clinical signs that are inconsistent and incongruent with other known neurological disorders. So we really rely on assessing for those clinical features that are unique to FND, such as distractible or intrainable tremor, giveaway weakness, Hoover sign, sensory loss that doesn't follow any anatomical or physiological pattern, etc. Certainly, historically, the diagnosis of functional movement disorder has been one of exclusion rather than inclusion. Can you describe some of the unique challenges or concerns that physicians may face when diagnosing patients with functional movement disorders? I think with these changes in the diagnostic criteria, we're actually now more empowered and more confident in making the diagnosis than comparing the past, as it was really impossible nor cost-effective to rule everything out, you know, based on the prior DSM-4 criteria, now we can rely on identifying these positive clues that are unique to FND. But there is still a concern or fear that many providers share with us that once committed to the FND diagnosis, we may be missing on other possibilities. However, um, longitudinal studies in FND research tell us otherwise. When FND patients are followed over time, changes in the diagnosis occurs rarely, meaning that uh, mistakes are actually uncommon. But we believe that FND patients should be monitored over time by neurologists to reinforce the education, to be able to track their treatment progress, as well as look for 
any other clinical signs that may emerge that may indicate an alternative diagnosis. I expect that presenting a functional movement disorders diagnosis to a patient needs to be handled delicately. How do you approach this in your practice? I think empathy is really the key. Building a therapeutic alliance through active listening, providing validation of their symptoms, and taking the time to explain the condition in simple language really lays the foundation to help patients to understand the problem, accept the diagnosis, and also to adhere to treatment plans. Sometimes patients are rather relieved to hear that there is a name to their condition and potential treatment. So I think this is an excellent opportunity to bring Dr. Rush into the conversation. FMD is commonly encountered in the movement disorders clinic, as just discussed, and treatment often requires interdisciplinary care. Dr. Rush, can you describe how your team manages these patients and your typical course of treatment? So typically, patients uh, present to me after they have been diagnosed with FND, oftentimes um, either by Dr. Yu or one of our other neurologists who strongly suspects this diagnosis. And um, when patients come in to see me, it can sometimes be a little precarious at first because they'll say, you know, I don't know why I'm here. I think perhaps my neurologist thinks that this is all in my head. And so they they often aren't real sure how to um, approach me. <laughs> and so I, I usually start out by saying that, you know, I'm, I'm just, I'm a part of your treatment team. We know that you are a person and you know, you're not just a, a set of symptoms that are presenting to clinic. And when you're dealing with symptoms like these, it can affect your mental health as well as your physical health. And so I'm here to be able to teach you the right tools to help manage these symptoms as best as possible so that you can have the best quality of life as possible. And my approach to treatment is typically cognitive behavioral um, therapy. And so this is in the simplest terms, you know, how do our thoughts, feelings, and behaviors all affect one another? And so how do we better understand how, how people respond to their symptoms? What goes on in their mind when they start to experience their symptoms? And for many, it's that there's a lot of bells and whistles that are going off because they, they see it as a threat. They see it as dangerous and they see it as something that they can't control. And so we try to work on ways to, to appraise those symptoms differently so that they see them as less of a threat and are able to manage them um, a bit more effectively. So we work on that. You know, we work on stress management. I, I tell all of my patients that, you know, I'm not here to tell you that stress caused your symptoms, but I've really yet to encounter a condition that stress makes better. So if we can manage your stress, we can likely take a layer off of how these symptoms affect you. We talk about triggers and, you know, because for a lot of people, there may be environmental or other sensory triggers for their symptoms. How do we manage some of those triggers or how do we slowly desensitize people to those triggers? Uh, we work on relaxation strategies, mindfulness strategies, sleep hygiene strategies, how they can better pace their activities so that they're not overextending or underextending themselves, as well as sometimes creating better boundaries and uh, implementing assertive communication with friends, family, coworkers, so that they feel as empowered as possible to move forward with their best life. 
So it sounds like having a clinical health psychologist integrated early into the uh, treatment regimen is an excellent idea. Anything else with your multidisciplinary approach? Uh, do you do a back and forth with the clinicians? Are there is there anyone else involved specifically in the interdisciplinary team? Yes, absolutely. So the the team expands or contracts depending on the patient's needs. And so uh, the the three legs to the stool that are typically involved include myself, Dr. Yu, and one of our trained physical therapists. And, uh, and I think that the physical therapy and the behavioral therapy go very well hand in hand because we're working on ways to help people manage these symptoms. And sometimes anxiety can get in the way of them making progress in PT. And sometimes they need to work on some of the strategies that they're using in, in behavioral therapy and in physical therapy. So they work in tandem quite well. And then depending on the patient and, and what types of symptoms they're having, um, we can also include occupational therapy, speech therapy. Um, there have been some patients who have been very interested in integrative medicine type interventions with you know, diet and other things. And so we've, we've looped them in as well for some of our patients. So we really want to make sure that we stay as connected as possible to all the right providers. And we are in constant communication through our um, uh, electric medical records, through um, phone calls, through emails, um, through pages, so that we can all stay you know, seamlessly involved in this patient's care. So COVID has been a challenge to all of us, and it seems like examining patients is very important uh, in the diagnosis and then management of these patients. Could either of you talk about your challenges uh, with managing FMD patients during COVID and telemedicine? Yes. In the very beginning, when um, the pandemic uh, began, it was difficult to maintain that close uh, relationship with our patients who often are from different states, um, difficult to come in due to the concerns for infection. Um, However, we also used the uh, pandemic as a catalyst to help really uh, facilitate the development of a virtual platform called the Virtual Share Medical Appointments. We began that particular service since July, and we have been doing that twice a month for both clinical assessment and also education opportunities. These are 90-minute sessions conducted online using ClinClinic's MyChart Zoom application, We find that it allows us to provide the patient with more education. um, And uh, also, it is a powerful platform to have patients to see, hear, and share with each other their stories, which often can be difficult to achieve in real life. We realize that these patients often feel marginalized, especially during this difficult time with covid And uh, we started this service to try to provide additional access for them. Dr. Rush, comments about how it's affected you and your practice? 
Um, I would definitely concur with Dr. Yu that the virtual SMAs have been a wonderful way for us to not only remain connected with our patients, but for them to be able to connect with each other. For my practice specifically, I think I, um, I'm actually busier because of uh, what virtual platforms have allowed. I, uh, I oftentimes would have to refer folks to providers um, nearby where they lived, and that may be in, in you know, Cincinnati or Dayton, you know, because they're not going to drive three to four hours to come see me. But now they're like, oh, you're just a Zoom call away. I would much rather you know, follow up with you given that you specialize in this. So, uh, so at this point, I would say that it's, it's actually made my practice busier. And whereas before, I think we were all a little wary of some of the, the virtual visits and how well can it replicate some of what we do in person. And while it's definitely different, I think for a lot of people, they, they've kind of gotten over that fear and now virtual communication is just so ingrained in what we do because of everything that's happened that most people actually are very comfortable with it. And I hope that that continues well after COVID so that we can continue to reach people um, in a way that we didn't before. Good. From your personal perspective, what do you feel are some of the biggest challenges with diagnosing and treating patients with FMD? Um, there is a very wide spectrum of phenotypes for functional neurological symptom disorder. We often see the functional movement disorder subtype because Dr. Rashi and I work in the movement disorder clinic. However, patients with FMD can present to epilepsy, multiple sclerosis, teams, stroke services. And not uncommonly, we also have encountered patients with FMD who also have other underlying organic neurological disorder, to name a few, Parkinson's disease, epilepsy. So it does become a little bit more complicated when two different conditions coexist. And we find that there often is this natural tendency to focus on treatment of the organic condition and place less emphasis on the functional components. Maybe the latter you know, may have been viewed as not real or perhaps less serious, but we often see the functional components either as disabling or many times more debilitating than the organic counterpart. So we feel strongly that both conditions must be assessed and deserve equal attention. That's one of the, the challenges and one of the things to consider and, and really crucial for patients' overall prognosis um, one other common concern I hear is that how do I know the patients are not malingering? Um, and I wanted to touch upon that. Um, research shows that malingering is uncommon. Most FMD are very genuine. And in our experience, some of our patients are among one of the most motivated group of patients. They often voice the desire to get better and, and really start living again. So most centers aren't fortunate to have a Dr. Yu and a Dr. Rush uh, looking after their FMD patients. So we will see these patients at some point. Any key takeaways that you want providers like myself to take from this conversation as it relates to caring for patients with functional movement disorders? One important takeaway is to ensure that providers listen to their patients. It's often the case that we are, are not someone's first evaluation. They've been evaluated in, in many other contexts with many other physicians. And many patients come in feeling a bit jaded about the whole process because they don't feel like they get heard. 
and uh, and that they're unable to really tell some of their story. And so I, I think that when patients come in and, and you're suspecting FND, it, it is important to listen to what they're saying and, and validate what it is that they've been through because that is what helps to get a foothold into the right treatments, because then they'll trust you. And so even if you yourself don't treat FND, you can at least be able to, to offer them you know, a better direction than perhaps they would otherwise go if they didn't trust you. So I, I do think that that is a, is a key component to making sure that you can get those patients on the right track. Well, Shinshin and Taylor, thank you very much for joining us. I really appreciate your time and insights today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us. This concludes this episode of Neuropathways. You can find additional podcast episodes on our website, clevelandclinic.org slash neuropodcast, or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget, you can access real-time updates from experts in Cleveland Clinic's Neurological Institute on our ConsultQD website. That's consultqd.clevelandclinic.org slash neuro or follow us on Twitter at CLEClinicMD, all one word. And thank you for listening.